Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with an anonymous Twitter personality, The Gladiator. He is an Australian who has achieved financial independence via microcap and real estate investing. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So what got you started on your journey towards financial independence and investing? Growing up, kind of, my parents owned a lot of investment properties. So as a teenager, that was always something I was kind of focused on doing, you know, doing something similar myself. And then bought my first property in 2009, right before I got married. And then I thought, you know, it takes time to build up enough of a deposit to purchase another property. So, you know, doubling the share market to see, you know, if that brings any kind of new way or new journey of making kind of world, creating wealth towards that goal of you know freedom. So, and to be honest, ended up loving it much more than property. So I continued on with a, a property portfolio, built that up. And at the same time in parallel, built my kind of micro cap portfolio up over what now about a 13 or 14 year period. That's excellent. 2009, that was a great time to get started with. Oh, very, very lucky. <laughs> great timing. Yeah, that's fantastic. So are these mostly uh, rental properties or do you hold any that you just are hoping the price goes up or, or are you renting them all out? I bought a property in 09, which I ended up selling in 2014 to purchase another property. And so I ultimately bought two pieces of land that I developed properties on and just rent them out for kind of rental income. Very cool. Because my focus really is investing in, in micro caps, I wanted a pretty carefree journey in, in in property just to make sure that, you know, continue to have good tenants, they pay the rent, pays the majority of the costs off, also get an income from that. And I can spend my time actually working on, you know, developing and growing as a microcap investor, finding great companies. And because I find that, you know, if I had to pick one path, it would definitely be the stock market. But, you know, why not diversify and have a few properties as well as, you know, grow my stock market portfolio as well. Gotcha. So the rental properties are basically like your stream of income that you can live on. And then you can do this microcap investing, which you're attempting to compound over time. Is, is that right? Yeah, correct. And I, I went full-time microcap investing a few years ago. So it's, my, it's what I do pretty much from the moment I wake up to the moment I get to bed. So I was in a, in a corporate role while I was you know building up my property and stock portfolio, but you know let that go a few years ago. And, and now full-time focus on microcap investing. What was your corporate role? I was pretty much a technology project manager for about a decade. So in Australia, implementing large SaaS solutions from the US, like Workday, ADP, and, and large tech firms like that in large Australian firms here. And then I ended my corporate career as the head of global payroll for Australia's largest bank. So managing about $4 billion in payroll Per annum, which in and of itself is a, is a you know a fortnightly project, which is why I kind of took that role, but decided you know I mean I've got four young kids, didn't want to spend too much time commuting you know into the office and, and home. If it was it was a great role, you know, I couldn't really complain about the career, but I just wanted to spend more time with the kids, so gave that put that on hold, went full time investing, and now you know wake up, take the kids to school, do all that kind of stuff, the sporting activities, and you know can kind of manage my own time, which is great. 
Cool. So saving money for that role, that's kind of what gave you the seed capital for the real estate and the micro cap investing. Yeah. So I, I pretty much, I worked really hard in a corporate role, spent as little amount of money as possible, whatever was left, I invested and just continued to grow that, you know, for, like I said, from 2009 to a few years ago and just, just compound it as much as possible. That, that wouldn't have been possible though, if I didn't, you know, if I had credit card debt, personal loan debt, you know, a, a huge mortgage, all, all of my money would have went to servicing that rather than investing. So I kind of, I've avoided all forms of consumer debt pretty much my whole life. So, you know, none of my money was wasted on buying things. Rather, I just spent as little as I could and obviously still wanted to enjoy my life, but whatever was left, I pretty much bought property and stocks with. Gotcha. So that's that's a common theme I think you hear among people who pursue financial independence is that they tend to avoid all forms of consumer debt. Did you ever have any issues with consumer debt at all in your life or were you immediately uh, kind of turned no, off? No, no, never. I just, it, it never. It never made any sense to me like to buy a car, which is a depreciating asset and pay a high level of interest to purchase that vehicle just made absolutely no sense. So I just pretty much always bought what I could afford with my own money. You know, lots of people drove nicer cars and owned nicer homes and did all that, but everything I earned either went on, you know, you know, experiences and things that brought happiness or, you know, building my wealth through stocks and, and property. So I never regretted it at all. You know, most people who go into debt, especially in our current environment, now that interest rates aren't, you know, zero anymore and money's not free, you know, regret a lot of those decisions. For me, it was, it was always, you know, if I couldn't afford to buy it with my own cash, then it was never really an option to purchase. So that kind of saved me a lot of heartache. Yeah, that's very logical. It's definitely not logical to borrow money on a depreciating asset, but people will twist themselves in all kinds of intellectual knots to try to justify that nice, sweet leather interior with the new car smell, you know? (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people down the line, you know, if they could go back in time in a time machine would probably reverse a lot of those decisions and realize that, you know, that car that you bought for a hundred grand, in three years time is worth 50 you, you've paid tens of thousand dollars of interest and you know now, now it needs to be repaired all the time probably wasn't the smartest decision both financially and just from a practical sense yeah 100 percent. so when you were working what was your uh, savings rate while, while you pursued this i didn't really have a percentage that i was aiming for it was just pretty much i was very cognizant of every kind of cent that i made and where it went so if it made sense to spend a bit more on a particular month if there was a special occasion or something, it was okay to spend more than I normally would. But I just wanted to make really conscious decisions to not waste money. So if I got enjoyment out of spending it, time, experiences, et cetera, then great. But I, I never really had a specific percentage I was aiming for each month. It was just invest as much as possible, you know, without living like a hermit. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So was there anything in your career that really inspired you to pursue financial independence and said, you know, I really don't want to do the uh, nine to five forever. I wouldn't say there was anything in my career. I got married really early at 23, had four kids by the time I was 30. So my need for financial independence wasn't really anything to do with this time for myself, but I, I didn't want to spend, you know, the first 20 years of my kid's life, you know, getting up, being out of the house before they wake up and coming home when they're asleep. Because that time, you know, you can never get back. So it was really the drive to spend as much time as possible with my my family rather than, you know, I never really knew, I didn't even know what financial independence was when it was a goal I was aiming for. It was just, I wanted to spend more time with the kids. Uh, so I thought, you know, try as much as possible to make the best financial decisions early on. 
And I could always go back to work later when the kids are a bit older. They don't want to hang out with their parents, you know, when they're teenagers. So there's plenty of time to work and do all of that stuff later if I need to. But I, I really want to be around as much as possible when my kids were, you know, young, which they all are at the moment. Very cool. Very cool. So when you were doing that, how did you kind of resist the pull of lifestyle inflation? So there's always a temptation when people are working and earning high income to start to inflate their lifestyles. Was that ever a temptation for you or was it just a natural inclination? Like if it's stupid and I'm not going to do that. No, to be honest, it was never, it was never something I struggled with just being around. You know, I spent sometimes weeks without a day off, you know, working 24 hours straight. So I went, I, I to kind of work my way up the ladder early on, I did a lot of kind of crazy hours and going into some of these projects that were, you know, really high intensity towards the end. So I had a lot of reminders of what I was trying to achieve and why. So I never really felt, oh, I really wish I bought that car when I, you know, maybe didn't see my kids for a couple of weeks. I was working so hard. So plenty of plenty of reasons to keep me kind of on target and never really had to struggle with lifestyle inflation. And even today, I don't. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So as you were pursuing real estate investing, so how do you think about leverage with real estate? Are all of your properties paid for or do you uh, use some leverage towards them? I use leverage early on. And to be honest, when it comes to property, I have no issues with leverage. Being in Australia, we have a very, and we have always had a very strong property market. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't take on any leverage with stocks or have any consumer debt, but property debt to me is something in Australia that has worked for a number of decades. So I had quite a bit of leverage early on, used any capital gains to kind of pay that down and don't have much of a loan at the moment because you know I've owned the properties for a while and, and I never refinanced them. So early on did use leverage, but you know my loan to value ratio now is very, very low. Oh, very cool. So you own them free, almost free and clear and they're throwing off rents for you. Correct. And my, my home, I wanted to make sure I paid that off before I paid down my investment properties, because in Australia, there's a very favorable tax system for property investors. So all my kind of spare cash I didn't need at the moment went to my my primary place of residence, so my, my, my home that I live in. And then once that was paid off, started to make dents in, in the investment properties. Gotcha. Very cool. And how do the mortgages work in Australia? So in the US, we have these nice fixed rate mortgages. Yeah, very different to the US. <laughs> yeah. How, well, yeah. So how are, how are they different? That's really all I, I know. I know that the rest of the world is different, but I don't know like a lot of the details. Yeah. So the majority of the, the US mortgage environment is, you know, 30 year fixed rates. In Australia, we're pretty similar to Canada where we don't have many fixed rate mortgages. So for those who are on fixed rate mortgages, they tend to be between one and five years but not any greater than that. So the vast majority of people in Australia will uh, be on a, what we call a variable rate, which is just the market rate. And some will be on a fixed rate between one and five years, but obviously with a 30-year mortgage, you'll roll off that and back onto a a variable mortgage. So for example, I in 2021, I locked in a 1.79%, I'm pretty sure that's a number, 1.7 something percent interest rate for two years, which was great wow. when interest rates went up to 5%, but that actually rolled off that interest rate only a month ago and it went from 1.7 something to about five and a half percent so you know it works great when you fix it but in australia we don't have there's no such thing as a 30-year mortgage so we're, you're pretty much rolling you know on and off fixed rates over a one to five year period and then for the majority of the time you're on, a, on the variable market rate gotcha so there's definitely more danger to leverage in Australia for real estate than there is in the U.S. because those interest rates can turn on you on a dime. 
They can, but we, we've historically had a very good environment for property investing. So, you know, it, it's the, the old saying of when you go to an Aussie barbecue, you spend most of your time talking about property. So Aussies love property. We even when the US went through the GFC and your your you know 30 odd percent property crash, ours was very subtle. We didn't have much of a crash. And we, you know, we haven't even had a recession in about 30 years. So most people in my position who, you know, who are, you know, I'm in my mid thirties, haven't really seen a sustained period of weakness in property. So even though we're on the variable rate, we've been on variable rates for, yeah, since pretty much 1980, we haven't really had to deal with anything too major. Maybe that's different now because since the eighties, we've just had a sustained decrease in inflation, which means decrease in interest rates. And even when interest rates were were raised during particular periods, um, they were very quickly cut back again. So perhaps we're moving in from a macro sense, a high inflation decade, which means high interest rates for prolonged periods of time, which may eventually impact Australia. But you know, we're sitting here; interest rates have gone from pretty much zero to about five and a half. Oh, sorry. So the RBA rate from zero to about four percent. So about a four percent increase in the last year or so. And property really hasn't been impacted too much. So the only explanation for that, I think, is people using credit cards to pay for things and savings that they, you know, all the money you couldn't spend during COVID is currently being drawn down. But who knows how long it'll take for, you know, people to have to make tough decisions, downsize, sell investment properties, you know, sell the farm or sell the the beach house. But at the moment, it's like the Australian property isn't impacted by much. So eventually, I'm sure that'll change, but I'm not sure when. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable that Australia has been able to avoid a recession for three decades. That's a, that's kind of an amazing achievement, especially because if I'm not mistaken, a large portion of the economy is natural resource basis. So you you would think that that would be a lot more volatile. Yeah, correct. And, and most of our natural resources from in, in our state called Western Australia, so they do all the heavy lifting. Sorry, from that perspective, now we have a pretty robust banking system slash financial hub in, in Sydney and Melbourne. But yeah, so through the dot-com bubble, through the GFC, through COVID, no recession, no bad property crash. And, you know, our stock market kind of just follows what the US does most of the time. But we don't have a very, we don't have many Australians invested in the uh, stock market, sorry, compared to the US, because most people are invested, for those who do have investments, um, in, in, in property so even when stocks go down, it doesn't impact too many people. You know, it impacts people like me who actually do this for a living, but we don't have a very high ownership of stocks in Australia. Rather, people just focus on property. Gotcha. Cool. So I guess now we can turn to stocks. So how did you get started with your interest in stock investing? Just by complete luck, to be honest. I still remember I bought that property in 2009 and then I was Googling, you know, what, else, what can I invest in? while I'm waiting to, you know, to build up another deposit. And obviously the number one thing came up was the stock market. But, you know, growing up, that would have been about 20 then, 1920. I didn't know anyone who, who had ever invested in, in the stock market. So that was never a thing growing up for me where I lived. So we have a website still around today called Hot Copper. And it was, you know, it was the main thing that came up in the Google search. So I went into that and finally, and lucky enough for me, m- most of the stocks discussed on Hot Copper are microcaps. So not only did I get lucky with kind of staggering into the stock market, I also fell into microcaps, which I found fascinating. And from there, it was sure, you know, I still like property, but, you know, I got I got the stock bug with microcaps and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. 
Cool. So right from the get-go, you were into microcaps. You didn't try it. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't even know what a microcap was. But just <laughs> reflecting now, I just stumbled on these little, small, undervalued, unknown stocks just by a bit of luck and you know, spent about 13 years now harnessing all of my experiences, my losses, my learnings to create you know, a strategy that I feel can work in, in most environments with you know a very heavy focus on risk rather than return. And obviously, all of those lessons were learned by losing a lot of money. And that's, I always say, there's only so many mistakes you can make in the market. And once you've made them all, you've can't, you should have a strategy that is, you know, pretty tailored to making good money in in bull markets. Maybe not as much as people who take extreme risks, but also you're not giving a lot of that back in bear markets. So that's pretty much. It's been tested over time, improved over time. Even till today, I'm, I'm happy to continue to tweak my strategy when I'm picking up little nuances on, you know particular stocks because whenever i sell a stock whether it's a, a loss or a gain i really want to try and understand what what happened what what went right what went wrong if i had my time over how would i replay that and what would i do differently so i'm, I'm always happy to kind of tweak my strategy and that doesn't mean going from you know a my standard hold is you know two to three year period i'm not going to go from that to a day trade that's not not what i mean by tweaking but tweaking my individual rules to you know improve my performance and better manage my risk over time Gotcha. So, you know, looking at your microcap strategy, you mentioned that there were some mistakes that you made early on. So what were some of those? What were some of those mistakes and, and how have you applied them to your current process? Where should I start? So <laughs> when, I, when I first started, I actually, my wife and I had $10,000 in an account that we were going to use for a holiday. And I said to her, I really want to give this stock investing thing a go. Would you mind if I just took that money and invested it and we just wouldn't go on the holiday. But there was really only one condition I had that I, I, she couldn't ask me how much money I made or how much money I lost. Because if I knew I had the pressure of telling her how I was performing, it would have impacted my kind of decision-making process. And I, I just wanted to make what I thought yeah, there's, was the best there's a decision lot. without any pressure. There's a lot that can go wrong here. <laughs> yeah, and it did. I'm, as I you're laying out this, as you're laying out the scenario, I'm like, ah, oh, this this isn't gonna have a happy ending. <laughs> uh, well, I lost the money. I, lo I lost the majority of that ten thousand dollars over a couple year period, and ended up putting in more money, and then I lost that, and then I put in a final deposit. This would have been back around 2013, and that's the last time I ever put money into the market. So from there, I. It took me about two years to regain. So in 2015, I had made back all of the money that I put in and I was pretty much at a break-even state. And I had to kind of make a decision. Was I going to take this seriously and stop, you know, in inverted commas, you know, gambling, taking tips off Twitter and hot copper and just buying and hoping things go well? Or was I going to take this more seriously and treat it more like a career? And so thankfully made the decision to to pretty much write down and brain dump everything I had learned, all the mistakes I'd made over the, the six years prior to that and put together a proper strategy. So, you know, not buying stocks just because they're going up on, on FOMO, learning how to lock in profits, learning how to manage portfolios, not just stocks, not buying oil explorers that have a, you know, 95% failure rate. And I can give you, you know, countless examples of how much money I've, I've lost just in those individual examples, but I took all of them put them into a strategy and then continue to refine that strategy over another five-year period, which got me to about 2020. And by then I had made pretty much, I think, every mistake possible. And my strategy had seen exposure to really good markets, 
really bad markets, you know, high interest environments, low interest environments, war times. Then we go into lockdowns and, and global pandemics, raising rates at incredibly high periods, inflation going up very fast. So it's, it's seen so many different uh, environments. And in the last few years, it's really stood the test, which, which is what gave me the, the confidence to say, you know, I, I've done enough. I've been doing this for long enough and I've learned enough that I can do this full time. So yeah, like I said, did that about three years later, but early on, there were so many mistakes. Like you go back and go back to the, the example I just gave of the oil explorer, which is why I would never invest in an oil explorer again. There was a stock trading at 30 cents and they, they released a report saying, you know, we've got a 30% chance of finding oil. And, you know, for anyone who knows oil stocks, if you, if you hit an oil discovery, you're going to make five to 10 bags pretty quickly. But the, the flip side, which I wasn't thinking of, is if you hit a duster, which is no oil, then you're, you're likely to lose 90 to 95% of your capital overnight. So I was solely focused on, oh, that's great. Look how much money I can make. Uh, bought into the story, bought the stock. So I was trading at 30 cents, went into a trading hole for them to release the news of their drilling. And of course, it was a duster. So it went from 30 cents to 0.006 overnight, which is about, I don't know, 98, 99% loss in the blink of an eye. So thankfully, that, that mistake happened very early on, which taught me quite a few lessons and really honed in on the, the focus now, which is stop trying to work out just how much money you can make, but also trying to work out how much money you're risking to try and make those profits. So yeah, that was a very uncomfortable experience, if, we, if I can say that. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I guess a key part of your process is to think through a situation and figure out whether or not it could result in a total loss of capital and then just avoid those situations entirely. Do I have that right? It's, it's broader than that. So I've got a number of factors that I, I run through when I'm analyzing a stock. All of those contribute to managing risk. So for example, do the directors, so the board of directors and the management team, do they have a significant amount of, of stock that they've bought on market, right? Because if they do, that their interests are now aligned with my interests. So I didn't get a salary, they get a salary. So if they've got a, you know, a, a multi hundred thousand dollar salary, like in you know, a 300 K salary with no stock, their main interest is, is keeping that salary, right? Doesn't necessarily mean that has to result in the share price appreciating, but if they've got a smaller salary and a lot of their own money in the, in stock, then their interest now isn't keeping the salary, but it's getting the stock price up. So that one factor, which I never looked at in my early years, just reduces your risk significantly. Obviously, there, there's no guarantees in, in any, regardless of whether micro caps or, or, or mega caps. But if you look at all the factors that I run through, and that being one of them, um, each one just minimizes risk. And at the end, I'll take a holistic view to say, how much money am I willing to risk in these stocks that have very high potential? And then find the ones that have the smallest amount of risk and just continue to so most of my most of the time I'm holding between ten and twelve stocks. So find ten to twelve stocks that have a minimal risk profile with a large upside. And I know of that ten, let's say it's ten stocks, only one or two of them are going to do really well. The main thing though is the other eight not resulting in a large loss. Because early on I had a lot of large wins, then a large loss, large win, large loss. So I wasn't making any ground, but I was still finding a lot of winners. My problem was, and I think most people's problem is that they never get out of that cycle of trying to eliminate their big losses. And so I'm more than happy for eight of my 10 or even nine of my 10 to kind of cancel each other out. So either small loss, break even or small win. 
So they all cancel each other out. And then that one or two stocks takes the profile to the next level. And then rinse and repeat. 10 new stocks, compound that again. As then as long as you don't have any big losses, you can very quickly compound your portfolio, especially if you're dealing, if you're not a fund or a large institution, if you're just a retail or a sophisticated investor with a, a smallish, and I know that's very that can mean different things to different people. But you know, Buffer says if you had less than a million dollars, you can easily make 50% a year of that. So you don't have to try and beat the market. You know, if you've only, if you've got sub one million dollars, you know, trying to get a 10% plus return a year isn't that difficult, which you know might sound I'd be crazy to most people and might think that, you know, this is some kind of, you know, gimmick or scam. But if you're if you've got a small portfolio, then you're you can very easily be fluid in the market and make moves that large investors, institutions, funds, etc. can't make. So if you've got to exit a stock and you've got a hundred thousand dollars worth of stock, you can do that very quickly. If you own ten million dollars worth of stock, well then guess what? That you would take a significant fall in the share price if you need to offload all of that stock. So we have a very big advantage over the larger institutional holders and fund holders by managing these smaller portfolios and growing them at a much quicker rate, which obviously slows down once you build it substantially. But in the early years, you can really build quite a substantial increase in appreciation in your overall portfolio if you can avoid large losses. You know, that's what I've been trying to do. Gotcha. So would you describe your style as more growth or value? Like, are you looking up for kind of like beating up stocks below net current asset value, or are you looking for things, micro caps that can eventually graduate into small and mid caps? Yeah, the latter. Definitely micro caps have the potential to grow into larger larger firms, whether that be in, in mining, in biotech, or in tech in general. They need to have the potential to grow into larger stocks. However, the risk if things don't eventuate, and I understand that most of the time things don't eventuate, needs to be pretty small. So, you know, if I'm if I'm willing to lose, I'm willing to lose 30% on each position for the stocks that I hold. For the 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 chance of one of the 10 being, you know, having returning multiples on my investment. So that's pretty much my overall strategy, finding, you know, 30% plus. So in my risk reward ratio would be negative 30 plus 500. So I'm looking for stocks that can appreciate 500% while risking 30% of my money. So to do that, there's only very, very few stocks. And, you know, I, at the beginning of every year, I run through every single stock under 30 mil market cap, sometimes take it up to 50 million if I don't get enough stocks. But we're talking seven to 800 stocks on the ASX that fit that scenario. And on any given year, no more than about 25, even make it to phase two, which isn't the stocks that I'm buying. But I will eliminate, you know, 90% of all stocks very quickly because they don't meet my criteria. So as an example, management teams don't own large amount of holdings or they don't have enough cash to last 18 months or their cash burn is too high or the register is very loose. So I'll run through all of these factors, identify the ones that meet the, the risk mitigants. So my downside's quite low. And then it's not that difficult to find ones with high potential. So the thing is focus on the ones that have low risk because the odds are they'll also have high potential. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're talking about a screen to identify opportunities, it sounds like you're looking for more of the things to avoid. So you mentioned they have a lot of cash, so they can have enough cash to last 18 months. They have a significant amount of insider ownership. Are there any other criteria that you look for when selecting a stock that you think are really important? Yes, yeah, so it needs to be in a sector that I think is either 
has just started in a, a bull market, or I think it'll start in the near future sometime. And th there's no set time for that because it's pretty much impossible to work out when money flow will move into a particular sector. I look at what's called what we have in Australia. We have it's called the top twenty, so top twenty holders, which is a very good view of the register. So who owns the stock? How successful are they? Have they done it before? Are the management team in there? Are the families of management teams in there? Can I see any trends between this particular register and, and, and other successful registers? So for example, if there's one name in there that was in a, a very successful company, in, in a different company, try and match up the top 20s in those to see how many people have come across with that person. So am I now putting my money in the hands of people who are very successful, have successful people putting their own money in with large holdings, plenty of cash, and not just plenty of cash, but cash burn is very important. And we've seen that in the last 18 months. Anyone who's got a high cash burn since pretty much January 2022 has just been decimated because it's very difficult to get any traction in the market. So regardless of what you're achieving, the majority of these companies, even if they're achieving good things, are seeing a depreciation in their share price because the market knows they're burning cash at such a fast rate that they're going to have to raise capital pretty soon. And you just get into this cycle where you've got to get a discount, you dilute shareholders, you try to improve your fundamentals, the market's still not good, so you discount again, raise capital again. And so it, it just takes all the steam out of the stock, dilute shareholders, and makes it pretty much impossible to make a profit. So there, there are a number of things that I look at. But like you said, my absolute main focus is always what are the stocks that I can minimize my risk on and avoid large losses? Because if you can do that, it's not it's not too difficult to find good wins. Gotcha. So it sounds like early you were saying that you're looking for some type of long-term trend in that industry or sector that you think has legs and has the potential to move on. So is that a part of your criteria? Yes, I'll give you an example. So so like rare earths, I'm not sure if you know much about the rare earth sector, but rare earths are pretty much used in all our technology, in you know, army vehicles, planes, submarines all our phones, laptops, computers, you know, without rare earths, so, we, we will go back in time. So we're talking about rare earths, minerals, metals. So we're talking about like metals that are unusual and are difficult to find, but are ubiquitous well, in a lot of different products. I'm, I'm well, they're called rare earths. They're not actually that rare, but okay. they're just different. It's rare to find an economical deposit. So there's rare, like there's lithium everywhere. There's, gotcha. there's lots of rare earths, but to actually find a deposit that, Makes sense to mine and will actually make owners money is quite rare. Yeah, so it's, okay. it's a it's a basket of, of different minerals that you could find in the ground. Most of them are found in China. So if we go back to 2018, you know we had the whole China versus US trade wars. That macro theme, right, made me go in and find out what sectors could benefit from the US and China being at odds with each other, and just through my, my research, found that China managed and controlled 90% of rare earths in the world. And in 2010, they stopped exporting rare earths to, only to Japan, right? And that set off the 2010 rare earth boom, which saw you know rare earths go up tenfold. The price of the rare earth uh, go up tenfold. So if China controlled 90% of the, the rare earths, can't see any time soon where the US and China are going to be on, on, on a good footing, then the, that means the price of rare earths should go up accordingly. Which now, then are, means are we are we talking about any particular type of rare earth or are we talking about like a portfolio view of them? Like are we talking about specifically lithium or 
No, several earths are different to lithium. Several earths are a particular basket of minerals that you can find in the ground. Um, separate, they're not, by rare, I'm not talking about lithium or copper. There, there's there's a, a basket of about 15 of them. And and they've gone through, each each of them have gone through their own phases of when they've been in higher demand and lower demand. But like the moral, the moral was rare earths as an industry should be getting a lot hotter because of the animosity between US and China. And so China, so in general, a broad yeah. view of many different rare earths and not one specific like commodity. Correct. Gotcha. Okay, I understand. Yeah. And so anticipating that allowed me to then go and find what were the, the, the best rare earth stocks in the ASX and what sets rare earth stocks apart. So for example, there's a lot of talk now about the ionic clay uh, rare earths or ionic clay rare earths. I found that five years ago, right? Because all of those deposits, you know, over 90% of those deposits are in China. They're very hard to find. And it's something about the geology in China that makes them stand out there. So that was never going to change. You're never going to find the amount of ionic rare earth clay in China that you're going to find in, in other countries. So I focused on that. So that's the kind of the process I go through. What, what's happening in a macro sense that can drive money flow into a particular sector, then look at the sector and say, okay, what are some of the competitive advantages of the best stocks in that sector and focus on them. So that way, and it did take a couple of years to go, to go for rare earth to actually start to perform really well as a sector. But when it did, you know, I was, I was able to get set in a number of rare earth stocks before anyone even knew what they were. And then the crowd, I call them, you know, the masses, the, the people who do what I did back in 2009 to 15, which is, you know, just rush into stocks without really thinking about it. They all started to come into rare earth. And then we saw most of them do, you know, 20, 30x during that time. And so they're the scenarios I'm looking for. So I really start with a macro sense and work my way down to what are some of the best uh, stocks in that sector that can take advantage of what's happening in, in the market. And you know what, if tomorrow China and the US become best friends again, then that whole narrative falls apart. And that sector, even though I really like it, could change in a second. So I can't be married to a particular stock or to a particular sector because if the reason why I bought it changes or, or disappears, then I also need to change my own strategy to say, okay, it's time to move out of those stocks and find something else. Gotcha. So, and if I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like you invested in this early when you saw the trend on the horizon, but everybody in the market wasn't necessarily familiar with it. And now you're out now that people have caught on to that and these stocks have risen in value. Am I am I correct? Am I understanding there? To a certain extent, yes. I'm not I'm not completely out of it at the moment because nothing has changed. To be honest, the animosity between the US and China has just gotten worse. Yeah. Which is why as a sector is still doing really well. But I will change my mind when something changes the narrative, whether that be it gets worse and China actually, so we, we saw a few weeks ago or actually a couple of months ago, China threatened to for reasons of their own security, stop exporting rare earths. So if that happens, then we'll, we'll see one of the, the biggest bull markets we've ever seen in rare earths. But if that doesn't happen, and for some reason there's some kind of agreement, and then we're all happy, we all play happy family again, like we did a, a decade ago, then it'll be time to move out of those stocks. So things can change on a daily basis. Not only do I keep an eye on my stocks every day, I keep an eye on the sector that they're in to make sure that the the tailwinds are still there and if something comes up that challenges that then i need to be flexible enough to say okay i really love this stock but the reasons why i loved it are starting to fall apart and, and I, I need to scale out but at the moment that hasn't happened gotcha so and then these rare earth stocks they're big in australia and so 
I, I guess when the, the world shifts their supply more towards the Australian suppliers and the Chinese suppliers, and that's what has driven a lot of this performance. It's not it's not particularly that Australian rare earths are great, even though we do have great Aussie rare earth companies. If you look at the ecosystem of the ASX, the, right, the Australian Stock Exchange, we have the largest set of small micro caps globally. And by small, I mean sub 50 million. So in the US, it's quite rare to have a sub 50 mil market cap. You know, we call them nano caps sometimes. There's not that many of them because the US has a very strong VC environment. Right. In Australia, we don't have that. So yeah. we our minimum requirement to list on the ASX is a 5 mil market cap company. So you can't get that anywhere else in the world. The only exchange that comes close to that is the Canadian exchange, but their liquidity is so low that's very difficult to be able to, um, even as a small investor, let alone large investors, be able to take and exit positions. So the ASX is really known as the small micro cap ecosystem, especially when it comes to mining. But like you said, we have a very heavy focus in Australia on mining stocks. So a lot of the stocks that I, I own, even though they're listed on the ASX, their assets are not even in Australia. Okay. Okay. So the, the Australian stock exchange is, is an attractive environment because there's so many of these microcap stocks. Like I know in the US, a big problem has been, there's actually been a declining number of stocks over time. Um, there's less and less companies going public because as you mentioned, there's this robust VC environment. So, yeah. but you're saying Australia is kind of a unique market for, for a skilled microcap investor. Right? We're the opposite of the US, to be honest. So we, we, our VC environment here is very, is very low. So there's very little investorship and there's no VC ecosystem here. So, but we also have liquidity. So, you know, the Canadian exchange, if, if I look at some Canadian stocks that I've analyzed in the past, if they simply listed on the ASEX in exactly the same form, they'd probably command a 50% premium in share price, purely because they're getting access to so many more investors and liquidity. So a lot of a lot of the times these Canadian exchange uh, stocks on the on the Canadian stock exchange, the TSX, they delist and they release on the ASX purely to get access to our ecosystem here and our liquidity and, and investor base. Oh. And on the, on the other side, we have a lot of micro caps start on the ASX, build themselves up to say that hundred mil plus market cap, and then move to the Nasdaq. Ah, okay. So if you if you've got a dream as as a private holder of a company saying you want to list on the Nasdaq and you, but you're still very early on and you can't get access to any VC money, a lot of the times I'd list on the ASX over a number of years, prove prove themselves up in whatever industry they're in, and then list that out on one of the on the US exchanges. Gotcha. So what are some of the tools you use to find these opportunities in the Australian market? So do you have a particular screener that you use, or do you kind of just go through these more A to Z and look through a company by a company, go company by company and try to find opportunities. So how do you go about that? You nailed it. So my, my, I, I call my strategy A to Z. The only time I use a screener is, is simply to get a list of every stock under a particular market cap. From there, I'm literally going through one stock at a time, going to the source document, which is, you know, ASX announcements, rather than using, you know, even our biggest brokerage systems here in Australia are wrong, even on simple things like market cap. So I don't use any kind of software other than a screener to export the list of all stocks under a particular market cap. And from there, I am going through each stock one at a time. Like I said, there's about seven to 800 of them that fit my, that are within my market cap criteria. And then I use the factors in my strategy to cut them until I get to a list of about 
generally that's somewhere between 20 and 30 once I've gone through the 800 and then from there go into a much level a much deeper analysis into each of those and a lot of the time that might you know fit you know five of the seven factors for example and I'm just waiting for one thing to be met and then so I put that on my watch list when that particular thing is has now been taken care of like say raising capital for example then I would go in and buy the stock so it's not like I'm against capital raises because any small micro cap company is going to have to raise capital that I have no issue with companies raising capital, but I want them to raise capital when they're creating value. So you've achieved a certain milestone and then to get to the next milestone, you need capital. No problem. More than happy for the company to raise doing that. What I don't like is they've tried to meet milestones have failed. They need to raise capital to just simply try again or to pay salaries or, or non-value adding activities. So capital on the way down is very bad. Capital on the way up is, I find, to be very good. Yeah, that's a tough thing. That's a tough game to play because in these early stage companies, obviously, they're very hungry for capital. But at the same time, you have to balance that against getting diluted. So, you know, you, it's, it's probably a difficult balance to play there. How, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you think about that when you're looking at one of these companies? Yeah, and, and to most a lot of the time, it's the market environment. So if you if you owned let's say lithium, right? You've got a lithium stock in Canada, for example. Raising money is never an issue. The market wants you to go as fast as possible, raise money, expand your asset, and get into production as soon as possible. So the market doesn't care about raising capital at all when it comes to lithium stocks. On the flip side, if you own gold, right, which is a sector that I really like, the market hates capital raises. So they actually want you to slow down don't go as fast as you can and drill as fast as possible to find the best gold asset. It's slow down, conserve your cash, drop your salaries, drop your exploration. When the market turns for gold, then you can do what lithium stocks are doing. Spend a lot of money, raise capital, et cetera. So the key isn't the, the, the hunger for cash, really it's the sector. If you can time the sector well, then it's not really an issue to raise capital on the way up. Gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned that you like gold. What do you like about gold? Oh, I wouldn't call myself a gold bug, like a lot of people I know, but I think the fundamentals are really stacked in gold's favor. And it's it's been very unloved for the past couple of years. But if you, if you look historically, it's done really well in periods of high inflation, periods of uncertainty, you know, period, wartime periods, etc. So it seems like everything is actually going in favor of gold. It's just there's other more exciting sectors out there, as example, you know, lithium, where investors would rather put their money at the moment. But the thing is, you can never time it to the day or the month. So something will happen, there may be, let's say, a very large dual result or a discovery made in a, in a junior gold stock, which might, you know, overnight, bring in plenty of money flowing into gold stocks. And that's the key with microcaps, it's money flow. So if, if the money is flowing into a sector, you know, a gold asset with, you know, a million ounces of proven jork uh, gold is trading at the same value as some lithium explorers have never put a drill hole in the ground. That's all about money flow, right? So those things can change very quick. The problem really arises when you think you like a sector, but it never actually eventuates. So, you know, what, what example can I give? Like if you love, let's say you, you made a lot of money during tech stocks in 2020, 2021, the market's really good. Fed was printing money, interest rates were zero. It's really easy to expand and increase your revenue without increasing your costs, right? If you love tech stock in those two years and you, you kept with that narrative in 
2022 and 2023, you would have got killed. And if the narrative doesn't change and we remain in a high inflation, high interest rate period, then that won't change. If you know, so I know I don't pay too much attention to kind of macro thesis uh, or people who make predictions on macro, but if we do continue in a high interest and, and high inflation period for the next decade, which some people are saying, tech stocks won't perform. It's really that simple because they're, they're reliant on low interest rates. They're reliant on companies getting loans, increasing their revenue, going as fast as possible to try to prove whatever business they're running. That doesn't work and it hasn't worked for the past 18 months. So a lot of, you can have a really great thesis, but if the money flow doesn't isn't attracted into that particular sector, it's very difficult for the company to succeed because you're right, they need to raise capital. Eventually, whether you're doing well or not doing well, you're going to have to raise capital to continue to fund your operations. So if you're going, if you go through multi-year periods of, you know, money contraction in a particular sector, it becomes very, very difficult to avoid large losses, which is, you know, the way for that I avoid that is, you know, let's say I own 10 stocks, I wouldn't own more than two stocks in a particular sector. So I don't really diversify in the traditional sense of owning, you know, some ETFs, some micro caps, some large caps. I don't do any of that, but I, I do kind of diversify within micro caps to make sure I've got a, a broad range of sectors covered. So when some go through really difficult periods, others are going through great periods, which can kind of make up for it. Gotcha. So one of the things to think about with these resource stocks, I know that when I've looked at gold stocks in the past and things like that, they're extremely volatile, like out of nowhere, they can have a, you know, an 80%, 90% drawdown. So how do you control for that risk? Do you have stop losses? Will you be quick to get out of something when the, when the story changes? How do you approach that? That risk. I think the, the, the only resource stocks that could do that are stocks that are drilling in what I call virgin ground. So in, in areas that have has never been tested before, and you're going for a kind of a one hit wonder, you know, you're just swinging for the, for the fence, hoping that you have a really good drill hit. That's something I'd never do, which I've done. Sorry. That's something I've done a lot in the past when I was learning, but I would never do that today. So there, there are plenty of resource stocks that have vast amounts of historical data in gold stocks, for example, of areas that were drilled, say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You know, geology doesn't change. What's in the ground doesn't change. So you can vastly reduce your risk by only owning gold stocks, for example, or gold explorers that have large amounts of historical data. But if you're going for the ones that, let's say, a good area but has never been tested before, and you the, the company does a drill program and that shows no gold, then of course, the share price is going to get decimated. But when I'm going through my analysis, it, it, that's one of the factors that if there's no historical exploration results, then I wouldn't be investing in the stock. Gotcha. And you mentioned that you own 10 to 12 stocks. So yeah. within those stocks, are they diversified among industries and sectors or do you pretty much concentrate in one area? So I'll kind of split my stocks up. Let's say six of the 10 in, in resource stocks two in biotech and two in just general tech. So companies providing a service or a product that they're trying to you know, become profitable over time. So resource heavy, couple of biotechs, and then a couple of just what I would say, you know, normal businesses, companies that are looking to, to make a profit over time. So these other, so outside of the resource companies, when you're talking about the tech and the biotech, these are early stage firms where you're hoping that they're going to achieve some type of breakthrough? 
Yeah, like so for example, if I talk about and I'll, I'll, I won't mention the name, I'll just talk about one of the stocks I own at the moment. So they they focusing on two kind of sectors that I I like one more than the other. One of them is psychedelics. So I think psychedelics has a, a very positive future. And second is medical marijuana. So what they're doing, so that they actually had the richest man in Australia take a substantial holding in, in their company because they're trying to produce the first FDA approved tablet form of medical marijuana. So there's, there's a product in the US that is in an oil form, produces about $600 million of revenue a year. And it is the only FDA approved product um, that, that fits the bill. In Australia, we have what's called the TGA, which there is no TGA approved product. So they're looking to become the first product in Australia and potentially the first product in the world to offer a tablet form that competes with the oil with the oil products. And so they've got that through their animal testing, through their phase one, they pretty much what they did was compare themselves against this product in the US that's producing 600 million US dollars in revenue annually. I um, mean, they've done really well. So when I'm talking about biotechs, I'm not talking about a, a company, like I wouldn't buy into it if you had absolutely no testing done in the past, no peers to work out, you know, potential upside depends on how much cash they need to execute the program compared to how much cash they have in the bank. So you see how those other factors I spoke about come into play where it's it's not like I'm, I'm hoping for a, a lotto type win, right? And some companies just produce this life-changing medicine that's going to make us all into billionaires. So a lot of the, it's the same things apply. I need to reduce my risk. The potential's there, but I need to make sure they've got enough cash. They've got the right resource base. The directors hold a number of stock. There's the right people in the register. Their cash burn per quarter is, will get them through at least six quarters worth of cash so they can avoid having to raise capital in bad markets. And of course, that doesn't guarantee anything, but the same rules apply as the resource stocks to the biotech to the normal tech stocks. Gotcha. So it's early, but it's not so early that they don't actually have a product. They, they have a product, they're testing it, and you're confident that the product is going to work out. Is that right? Well, it's not, it's not so much confidence that it's going to work out. It's if it doesn't work out, my downside is still limited. Because they have enough other things happening or the market hasn't assigned a high valuation to that particular product. So even if it doesn't work out, it's not going to be a, you know, oh, we're going to lose 80% overnight. Gotcha. Okay. So you mentioned that you're invested in marijuana stocks. So one of the concerns about marijuana stocks is that, you know, marijuana is a a commodity. It's it's a hot industry right now because it's becoming legalized in a lot of places in the world. It's getting legalized in a lot of states in the United States. Do you worry that it's just going to become a commodity and that it's difficult to really carve out like a moat in that industry? Or does that not concern you? So when, when I say marijuana, I know what you're you're talking about, the you know, the medical marijuana boom that happened in the 2020s where everyone was buying any stock that sold marijuana. So I'm looking at stocks that have a competitive advantage. It's not like like mm-hmm. that tablet form is what I'm talking about. Right. So it's 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 I'm not buying pot stocks or anything like that because that that time has come and gone. I can't see any anything happening in the future that would result in the whole sector moving again. Everyone's already talking about legalizing marijuana, so that moat has already happened. So it's it's unlikely that when it eventually happens that there'll be a very positive impact to the market. So I wouldn't personally be invested in, in that sector when it comes to the traditional marijuana stocks, no. Gotcha. So you're looking at a very specific company with a very specific niche product and you don't, you're not worried about that getting competed away. Correct. So the stock I was talking about, you know, they have like an ultra pure cannabinoid, right? It's in a tablet form. Mm. So it's not a traditional medical marijuana stock 
where you know you you can walk into a, a bricks and mortar and and buy some medical marijuana over the counter. I, I wouldn't do any of that at the moment. Not because I have anything against the sector. I just can't see anything happening in the near term. And by near term, I mean you know twelve to twenty four months that could actually change the sector to the point where the money flow will be redirected from other industries into that industry. But if something changes between now and then, and I can I can see an, an advantage coming to that sector, then of course, it'll go on the watch list. I'll go through all the stocks, run through the, the same process, mitigate my risk, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. So you're, you're heavily invested in microcaps. You have this real estate portfolio. You know, it sounds like you've achieved a level of financial independence that's very admirable. What advice would you have to someone, say, graduating from college today who wants to go down a similar path? I think the problem is, you know, the stat gets thrown out a lot that, you know, 95% of people in the markets end up losing their money. I don't really agree with that. I think the fact is true in in, in a sense where 95% of people leave the market, so they lose their money. But, you know, if you've been through what I've been through and you've lost your money multiple times early on and you just, and you can accept that that's due to your fault, right? It's not the market that's doing it. There's not some big scam of people trying to take their money, take your money away from you. No one's out to get you. Your success or your failures in your own hands. And every other I know that has hung around for more than 10 years has made money. Every investor I know who's left before 10 years has lost their money because now you've got no chance of making it back. And you've paid the tuition to learn all of the rules that are required to eventually be successful. But the problem is then people quit because it gets too hard. Like if I quit in 2015 because like, oh, finally I made all my money back. You know, I, I'm just going to go on that holiday. I could have gone on six years ago. My life would have been totally different. So I think that the main thing is you've just got to make a commitment that you just will not stop regardless of what you have to go through. And so for some people who, who just by luck, started in really good periods, might've made really good money and then lost it when bad periods came and you might've gone three, four, five years before you had to experience a lot of these losses compared to people who started last year, who in a way are very lucky because they've, they've been able to get about at least three to five years worth of experience in 12 to 18 months. Because the market's been that tough that all of your mistakes are highlighted to you. You know, in, in really good markets, you know, like the saying is, until the tide goes out, you don't know who's swimming naked. So you don't know a lot of the mistakes you're making because sometimes you're still making money even though you're making mistakes. The good things about bad times is that all of your mistakes, well, most of the time, eventuate in you losing money. So you're learning so much in such a short period. Don't then take that and throw it out and say, oh, this is too hard, I'm going to give up. The hard part is just sticking around. So if you can stick around, like I said, every person I know who's been doing this for a decade or more is successful. And every person I know who couldn't last that long lost their money. So you just got to find enough, I don't like the term motivation, but you need to find a reason that will, and for me, that was kind of freedom to spend more time with my kids. So it was a very strong reason, which would have been impossible for me to give up. But if your only reason why you want to succeed is to have enough money to buy a nice car, sometimes it's just easier to, to not even own that car and just not go through the pain. So if you find a hard enough reason that no matter what happens, you just won't give up because that thing you're trying to achieve is so important, then eventually you'll make enough mistakes. There won't be any more mistakes to make. The money will start to come. You know, you'll be so thankful that you didn't give up during the tough times. And just know that there's plenty of people who have lost more money than you made more mistakes than you. But if you keep going, it's, there's a very, very high chance that if you take it seriously, uh, more like a, like a career or a business, then you eventually, eventually make money. 
I think that's pretty much the best advice I can give. Gotcha. So I think it's safe to say that you think early on, most investors are going to experience losses because they don't have the knowledge yet. So probably be a good course to only invest money that you could afford to lose would be a I think you should go in and not even think about making money. Yes. Just come in to think, I've got this money that, you know, I don't need to pay the mortgage or put food on the table or pay the school fees or whatever it may be, right? This money is, it's not like I'm going to uh, gamble and if I lose it, I'll lose it. You should just think like this money is, you're never going to see it again. The purpose mm -hmm. of this money is your tuition to learn how to invest in the stock market. Gotcha. If you think about, I need to make a certain percentage or I need to make a lot of money, then you're just bound to to fail for sure. So come in knowing and, and actually hoping that you make all of the dumb mistakes as early as possible. Because by then, your your tuition will be a lot cheaper than if you start in a really good period, build a sizable portfolio, think you're a genius, and then a bear market comes and you lose large amounts of money that you just can't cope with and you never come back. So I know it's weird to say, but you should hope that you lose a lot of money early on because you've got a, a larger chance of actually sticking around and, and staying the course for 10 plus years to actually be successful. Gotcha. Makes sense. So before we wrap up here, are there any uh, departing thoughts that you have for the listeners? No, I think I'll, I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, I'm not trying to push my own narrative here, but I think micro caps are a fantastic space for smaller retail slash, you know, what we call in Australia, sophisticated investors to get involved in. You know, it, it really depends on what you're looking to achieve though. If you're just looking for, say, you know, a, a great retirement, then yeah, of course, stick your money in, in an ETF and just leave it in there in order to compound over time. History shows that. But if you if you want to try and escape what we call the rat race and maybe start a career in something different, give you more freedom, do that to achieve things financially earlier on in your life, then definitely give microcaps a view. But just know that you know, there's no such thing as getting rich overnight. Even if you get lucky early on, very high chance you're going to give it all back. So don't pay too much attention to money and, and just focus early on on learning. And, you know, whatever the 20 mistakes you're going to make, you're going to make them anyway, make them as early as possible, write them down, learn from them. And then you never know, you could be sitting in my position and made more money than you probably thought you could have 10 years earlier and be able to kind of wake up and do what you want every day. Very cool. And what are uh, the best ways to learn about you and reach you? I'm pretty much on, mostly on Twitter. So my handle is at the gladiator HC. Don't ask me why, you know, it's, I just love Russell Crowe and the Gladiator. Uh, <laughs> I do too, great movie. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> I hope he doesn't one day find me and make me change my name. But so I'm pretty much on Twitter. I run everything through Twitter. So I run a few different companies, all microcap related, but they're, they're all run through Twitter. So if you find me at the Gladiator HC, feel free to reach out, follow along, and hopefully we can all kind of go down this microcap journey together. Very cool. Well, thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.